Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Baptist Renewal podcast. I'm Matt Emerson, and I'm one of the directors for CBR. And I'm joined today, as usual, by Luke Stamps, another one of our directors at CBR. The Center for Baptist Renewal is a group of Orthodox Evangelical Baptists committed to retrieving the great tradition for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. If you enjoy what you hear today, we invite you to check out our website at centerforbaptistrenewal.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Baptist Renewal and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Baptist Renewal. And of course, if you like what you hear, uh, please hit subscribe and tell your friends to give us a listen. Uh, in today's show, we are going to discuss our second book in our 2022 Baptist Classics Reading Challenge, which is uh, Roger Williams' The Bloody Tenet of Persecution. And this version that we have... Uh, suggested on the reading challenge is an abridged version. So uh, Luke was just reminding me before we started that uh, the actual text, unabridged text, is around 400 pages long. So you're welcome for not uh, <laughs> recommending that to everybody. Uh, but this this is a, a helpful abridged version that's in this edited volume that we've recommended on the site. Uh, so We'll get started talking about that today. We, we had hoped to um, have, have a guest on today. We may have them on later um, to talk about religious liberty more broadly, um, but we're going to spend time talking about the bloody tenet, and then um, we may have a guest on later on to talk more broadly about the Baptist distinctive of religious liberty. So just to get us started on Roger Williams, um, Luke, what do you think the major contribution is here? not just in this text, but Roger Williams more broadly uh, related to religious liberty? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it's it, in some ways, it's kind of hard to overstate the significance of Williams, not only on the Baptist tradition, but also just on American um, religious liberty, like religious liberty in the new world. Um, you know, some people have questioned whether or not Roger Williams uh, should even qualify as a Baptist. Uh, because his career as a sort of capital B Baptist in a Baptist church was very brief. Uh, he comes to bap Baptistic conclusions, uh, I think around 1639. Uh, so he, just a little bit about William's life. He was uh, Cambridge educated, came over to the New World, was a part of uh, uh, the, the Massachusetts colony, um, and uh, eventually came to Baptistic conclusions, and also uh, especially important for Williams throughout his career from then on out was this co a commitment to religious liberty uh, in opposition to any kind of religious persecution for heretics, for other Christian traditions, etc. And so he eventually um, leaves uh, Massachusetts, starts a new colony in Providence uh, that becomes the Rhode Island colony. Um, and he, with the help of some others, founds the first Baptist church in America at Providence. And uh, so he's important for Baptist history, even though his career as a Baptist is relatively brief. Many people considered him uh, a kind of what, what were called seekers, people who kind of didn't attach themselves to any church. Um, and so, you know, we wouldn't commend William's entire career or his entire approach to the church. Uh, but it's certainly the case that while his Baptist career was relatively brief, the influence that he exerted on the Baptist tradition and on Baptist thinking uh, is, is really difficult to, to overstate. Right. Um, so anyway, this becomes a, a, a prominent 
belief uh, principle for Baptists uh, and the New World from then on out. Now, th we almost selected another text uh, in a British context a few decades before this one, uh, Thomas Helwes, who was also arguing the same thing uh, in, in the old world, um, in the mother country, uh, an argument for religious liberty. Uh, but that, you know, what you have here is, is really, um, it's almost like out of time, you know, that you would have in 1644, uh, in a context in which religious liberty was really not, was not practiced anywhere in the, in the, in the kind of way that Roger Williams is arguing for. Mm. I mean, there was religious toleration, you know, there was toleration for other, uh, other Christian traditions and even for other religions. Um, but there was, it was always in the context of an established church, right? Uh, right. Church of England, uh, in, in uh, the mother country and then in the colonies you would have like congregationalist um or or what have you the different you know traditions that were uh represented in the colonies you know be it be it anglican or or congregationalist and so for Williams to be arguing for disestablishmentarianism essentially mm -hmm. and for religious liberty not just religious toleration but for true religious liberty for heretics for jews for muslims for what he calls anti-christians you know basically atheists uh, is just utterly remarkable. It's again, it's sort of it's sort of a piece out of time that he would be arguing this uh, at such an early date, and obviously it becomes influential uh, over the next hundred years as um, as America moves toward uh, uh, independence and in the early republic with the the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, which enshrines religious liberty as the first freedom and the and the and the, the the First Amendment. Right. Yeah, and I think just to say a little bit more about. Williams and his sort of uh, extreme sectarian approach that, that follows very shortly after he founds First Baptist uh, uh, Providence, which I tell my students we should call First Baptist America. Um, uh, shortly after he found, which I'm sure would really please the people that are currently at First Baptist Providence. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just to address his sort of sectarianism, um, cause he, he pretty much just becomes his own church, uh, is, is what happens with Williams. Like he's so sectarian that nobody else can join, not even his wife, probably. I don't know. Um, so, you know, and people will use that and say, well, Williams isn't a Baptist and, uh, you know, therefore this doesn't count as a text related to, to Baptist, uh, classic, you know, positions or to, to Baptist distinctives, this sort of thing. And a couple of things on that. Um, number one is, as you pointed out, this kind of argument is already also being made and has been made for a couple of decades um, in England by Thomas Hell was first, but then also uh, sort of contemporaneously and then a little bit after Williams um, by particular Baptist. So this is not an argument that is unique to Williams in the time period itself. Uh, he does he does sort of like you said draw out a lot of more radical implications that are maybe perhaps more understated in those other sources. But um, this is not unique to Williams. The second thing I would say in that regard is that the identification of a Baptist distinctive is not dependent on a particular thinker's consistency with Baptist distinctives or their persistence in being Baptist throughout time. Um, you know, I mean, we could say, you know, for instance, with John Bunyan, 
John Bunyan in his writings addresses a number of things that we could call that we do call Baptist distinctives and yet is inconsistent, at least in my opinion, and I assume yours as well, Luke, um, in affirming open membership practices related to baptism. So he's not consistent in um, his, his Baptist practice, but that doesn't mean that we can't recognize where he's right and uh, I think representative in talking about other aspects of Baptist distinctive. So with Williams and with this text, we have a, we have a representative argument for religious liberty one of the Baptist distinctives, even if Williams himself doesn't persist in, in being a Baptist. So with that being said, um, what would you say are some key biblical texts and themes uh, that more clearly teach and imply? Because that's a big part of Williams' argument is here, here's where this is in the Bible. So maybe walk us through that and, um, and, and give us some key biblical texts and themes on religious liberty. Yeah. I mean, that, that one of the places where this uh, abridged version doesn't actually give the full picture, you kind of need to go back to the original version to see, is the, the setup for this book was um, an exchange that took place between Williams and John Cotton, uh, who was a Congregationalist uh, minister, um, and, and also an anonymous book uh, that was published, very short a book, it was just a, a pamphlet, um, that was called uh, Scriptures and Reasons was the name of the book hmm. uh, that was anonymously published uh, that laid out like some of, basically it lays out some of the key texts from the New Testament that imply religious liberty. And then it has quotations from the church fathers on religious liberty and also some, some quotations from uh, more recent Roman Catholic authors as well. Hmm. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting text that, that, um, is out there, and John Cotton had read the the that text and had written a letter to Williams, um, responding to it. Now, um, there's some debate, as uh, the the introduction to this this book points out, as to whether or not uh, Cotton had meant that letter to Williams to be kept private, or <clears throat> or what Williams ends up do, ends up doing is publishing it as a part of this book. Right. So there's uh, never Cotton, there's never been another supposedly private letter that's been published publicly in Baptist life uh, ever. We're going to let that one go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so, you know, the, you know, that Williams claims that he, that Cotton had meant this for public consumption. Cotton had claimed that it was meant just as a kind of rejoinder written to Williams. But anyway, Williams publishes both the, the anonymous uh, pamphlet scriptures and reasons, and then Cotton's response to it. And then, in a sense, this book, The Bloody Tenet of Persecution, is a kind of point-by-point -point rebuttal to Cotton's response. But in order to get the full context, you need to read that original, um, mm. that original pamphlet, which I think is just, it's, it's very brief, but very rich. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is one of the things that William, both that book and Williams is emphasizing, is that this is a biblical principle, uh, mm -hmm. that it's not, uh, it's not to say that religious liberty was practiced in the Roman Empire. But, that, right. you know, I mean, obviously it wasn't right, but that there are principles uh, in, in Scripture, especially as you move from the old covenant to the new covenant in Christ, mm -hmm. um, that if you if you tease out the, the entailments of those New Testament principles, uh, what you get is religious liberty as the ideal. Mm -hmm. um, and so just a few of those that um, this that this book, uh, Scriptures and Reasons mentions and then that, that Williams is echoing. 
Uh, one of the central texts is, is uh, Matthew 13, 30, uh, where Jesus talks about um, not separating the wheat and the tares mm-hmm. uh, until the end of the age when the angels will, will separate that. Now, that's an interesting text because it's debated um, between the various Puritan denominations. Um, so those who are more Presbyterian or Congregationalist in their orientation, who are baptizing babies, right? They're admitting into the membership of the church people who have not uh, professed faith in Jesus Christ have a different understanding of that from Baptists. Mm-hmm. So a kind of standard Reformed uh, interpretation of that text is to say um, that the the field is the church, right? And so that you let the wheat and the tares grow up together. You don't try to discern, you don't try to seek for a pure church in the way that the Baptists were arguing. Um, but what this pamphlet and what Williams is echoing is that actually, no, Jesus tells us that the field in that parable is the world. Right. The field is not the church, but the world. And so the wheat and the tares grow up together. Uh, and you're not, you're not to try to separate true and false believers in the world. And so Williams and, and this other anonymous author sees in that um, uh, an, an implication that we shouldn't persecute people because of their beliefs. We shouldn't try to sort out in the civic space um, who's a true believer and who's an unbeliever. We should let both grow together so that we right. should allow for religious liberty. Um, another text is Matthew 15, 14, uh, which talks about uh, letting the blind guides alone. You know, So again, it's, it's, it's sort of not passing a final judgment on even those who are spiritually blind. Um, Luke 9, 54 and 55, where Jesus rebukes the disciples for wanting to, to call down fire from heaven on mm. those who had rejected Jesus. And Jesus <laughs> says, no, don't do that. Right. Let, let them go. So there's, there's this idea that, that, that false belief should be allowed freedom. People should be allowed freedom in order to, uh, to believe things that are falsely. Um, right. Another text that, that he mentions here is 2 Timothy 2.25, uh, where Paul talks about um, correcting opponents. That, 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 that context, of course, is in the church, correcting opponents with gentleness so that maybe God will grant them repentance. Mm. And so what, what Williams picks up there uh, is that there's, there's really a kind of evangelistic impetus for Williams. This is, this is really prominent uh, throughout the book. Um, that the reason why we want to allow for religious liberty is because we want people to turn away from mm. heresy. Right. And we want them to turn away from false religions to belief in Christ. And if you imprison people or kick them out of the colony, then you lose an opportunity to, to win them with gentleness so that God may grant them repentance. And so there's this strong evangelistic thrust that comes through that, that if, you, if you start kicking out Jews and Muslims, then you're not going to be able to win them to Christ which I think right. is really remarkable, right? You see this, uh, it's, it's a way in which you see um, the Baptist emphasis on personal conversion and therefore on evangelism doves, dovetails with the Baptist distinctive of religious liberty. Right. Yeah. And so I think um, one of the key ways that, one of the other key ways that I think Williams defends that that conception of religious liberty um, so, for instance, on page 100 uh, of this particular version of the text, and this is, uh, let me see if I can give a better reference for those who don't have the same um, version. So, he, this, is, this is under the section heading, Civil Peace Not Threatened by the, quote, Arrogance 
of religious dissent. And then peace uh, speaks first for very briefly. And then truth says, uh, this is 98 in this version. In the examination of this distinction, we shall discuss, discuss first what is civil peace, and second, what it is to hold forth a doctrine or practice in this impetuousness or arrogance. Um, and so he goes on and he says, you know, this is what civil peace is. Uh, peace responds a couple of times. Truth responds again. Then on page 99, um, he, he gives six cases from the biblical text for this conception of religious liberty. And so then we get to page 100. And the fourth reason is God's people, since the coming of the King of Israel, the Lord Jesus have openly and constantly professed that no civil magistrate, no King nor Caesar has any power over the souls or consciences of their subjects and the matters of God and the crown of Jesus. But the civil magistrates themselves, yea, kings and kaisers, are bound to subject their own souls to the ministry and church, the power and government of this Lord Jesus, the King of Kings. And then he goes on and talks through Acts and uh, Gospel of John. So, you know, the idea is that the New Testament makes it very clear that upon the, the coming of Christ, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there is no more uh, theonomic nation state that uniquely represents God's rule. Uh, instead, Christ's rule and reign is universal, cosmic, and for all the nations. Therefore, no government has ultimate authority over a person's soul. Um, and, you know, I, I think maybe the rebuttal to that um, might be, well, the examples listed are governments that are antagonistic toward Christianity. It would be a different circumstance had there been a, a government that was um, positive towards acknowledging Christ's rule. I, I think that argument is difficult for me to accept for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's an argument from silence because that's just not the situation we had in the New Testament when these things were being addressed. Um, the, the second reason Williams himself points out, which is that um, if a government were to adopt a sort of positive vision of submitting to Christ's rule, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not paraphrasing Williams, but I think I'm accurately sort of saying his, his point in a different way. Um, if a government were to adopt Christ's rule or acknowledge Christ's rule openly, they would still be fallen, finite creatures who are going to get some things wrong and therefore wrongly persecute believers, fellow believers who differ with them on secondary tertiary doctrines and which he says is actually persecuting Christ himself. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me is what, is what he quotes there. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't, of course I don't find those arguments compelling because I'm art, you know, and perhaps that's, I'm predisposed to, to reject them. But um, I think William's argument is, is fairly sophisticated throughout in terms of, walking through the biblical text, showing how the government relates to believers in the New Testament, and then articulating a vision for religious liberty. Yeah, and he argues that basically it's, you know, it's those who persecute who disrupt the peace. Right. You know, like they, they um, you know, Cotton and the other side wants to say, well, you know, if, if religious dissenters are disturbing the peace, then, you know, we have reason to kick them out or persecute them 
whatever. And, and, and William says, no, actually the one, it, it, as long as the people are, are themselves being peaceful. I mean, Williams himself recognizes that if, if someone is seditious, they're trying to overthrow the government or something like that, then right. religious liberty is not absolute. Right. I right. mean, that, that, that's, that's an important point as well. Like in the, the, the civil magistrate has authority over bodies and goods, as he puts it, mm. um, not over souls, right? The right. church has the authority the Christ through the church has authority over souls. Right. Um, but the civil magistrate has authority over bodies and goods. So if, if someone in the name of religious liberty is ransacking people's churches or houses or something like that, or trying to overthrow the government, then of course, the civil magistrate has a role to step in and, and put that down. But as long as religious dissenters are themselves being peaceful, and the only thing that they're doing is speaking their views, um, right. then the, it's actually to persecute them is the, the one who persecutes them is the one who disrupts the peace. Right. You know, that context. Yeah. But, and so there's an, uh, there's, yeah. an yeah, yeah. there's an evangelistic motivation here and there's an ecclesial motivation. Evangelistically, if we kick them out, if we arrest them, whatever, we're not going to have the opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, ecclesially, we might end up accidentally persecuting those who are actually in the right and probably will given again, finitude and, and fallenness. Um, one, one more um, kind of follow up on, on what we've been talking about. You said uh, the government in William's view does have authority over bodies and goods, not over souls. Um, and I think that's an important point to emphasize because it, at least in, in my opinion, maybe I'm wrong, but in my opinion, um, Roger Williams's position and contemporary Baptist articulations of religious liberty are often mistaken or, or wrongly equated with a kind of libertarianism, which is not the case. So if you read Williams, if you read early, and we've talked a little bit about this uh, in the Confession of Faith uh, podcast, and maybe the one at the end of uh, 2021, but um, Baptist vision for the relationship between church and state was not a completely hands-off scenario in which the government had no obligation to promote the good and um, prosecute evil, including in areas of morality. So, you know, the idea that Baptist vision for religious liberty is a kind of free-for-all, that just isn't reflected in these documents. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, we, we may we may have an opportunity to talk more about that next time we have somebody else on to, to talk with us about religious liberty. But I just wanted to go ahead and note that once again, that um, religious liberty is not, you know, the 21st century version of American libertarianism. Yeah, just, this this is yeah, this is before um, a kind of a, the, the kind of Lockean enlightenment, you know, that we think about with with a. Uh, the founding of the American Republic and 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 so on. That really, what's motivating one of the things that's motivating Williams, in addition to the, in addition to this evangelistic and ecclesial focus, is his Calvinism. <laughs> you know, I mean, he uh, Williams believes that only God can convert. You know, so the 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 state can't grease the rails, as it were. I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that that establishmentarians, both then and now, uh, try to argue is that well, yes, of course, the the state can't. Uh, give the new birth, you know, by means of, dic you know, political diktat, but they can sort of make an environment in which people can more readily come to faith in Christ. It, the, the magistrate can serve, as the Westminster Confession puts it, as the nursing father 
of of uh, of the church. Uh, and what Williams wants to say is no, like not like only God can convert. You know, like the the, the state can't grease the rails for right. actual conversion. The the state, by means of religious persecution, can create hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they can't. But the state can't create true converts. And and by the way, uh, that that argument is uh, is mirrored in general Baptist articulations of religious liberty. So, um, you know, in a Calvinist view, which Williams is taking here, it is it is only God who can regenerate the heart. Um, in a in an Arminian view, uh, of course, God is ultimately sovereign over salvation and and it's the spirit who regenerates the heart, but it is through the decision of the individual. So once again, um, in Arminian soteriology, or at least a general Baptist kind of soteriology would limit the act of conversion to the, the profession of faith of the individual in which God regenerates that individual's heart. And again, the state isn't responsible for that. It's the individual um, who is responding to God's grace. So, you know, it's not just Calvinistic Baptists who want to carve out space for personal conversion. That is a all Baptists kind of articulation, no matter what your soteriological views are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I wasn't trying to suggest that only Calvinists can uh, affirm liberty. Yeah. But I didn't think you were right. But, but that, uh, in either case, it was a theological argument, not just a kind of enlightenment philosophical argument that's that being right. made. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so there are a few other things we want to talk about. I just want to, before we before we jump to anything else, um, to kind of go to our final conversation topics, I did want to read, and I meant to read this in the beginning and I forgot. Um, William says uh, a version of this a number of times throughout the text, but I did want to read, this is on the very first page. Um, so in, in this version, it's page 86, uh, the very beginning of the treatise. And he's, he basically is giving a summary of what he's about to argue. So first, second. So if you look down to number six, sixth, it is the will and command of God that since the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus, a permission of the most pagan Jewish, Turkish, which is Muslim, or anti-Christian consciences and worships be granted to all men in all nations and countries, and they are only to be fought against with that sword which is only in soul matters able to conquer, that is the sword of God's spirit, the word of God. Amen. I mean, that is, that's like, yeah, that that is the (laughs) statement of the Baptist vision of religious liberty. Only the sword of God, which is his Holy Spirit, can convert a sinner. And therefore the state allows freedom of conscience for everyone. And he lists other Christians who differ, Jews, Muslims, and then anti-Christians. That is essentially what we would now call atheists. Um, it, is, it includes everybody is, is what he's saying. And so, you know, for, for a Baptist to say something like, well, religious liberty only includes liberty for Christians or religious liberty doesn't include liberty for Muslims or, you know, something like that. Um, For a Baptist to say that just means they don't know enough Baptist history to know what a Baptist distinctive is. Baptists have always been for freedom of conscience for all people, 
other Christians that differ from us, Jewish persons, Muslim persons, and anybody else who's not a Christian, especially agnostics, atheists, but that, you know, that would also include uh, Hindu persons, Buddhists, etc. We've always allowed for religious liberty for all, and this is a Baptist distinctive, and that's probably the clearest statement of it you're going to find and the most pithy one too. So I just wanted to point that out before we move on and I forgot to do it. Yeah, that's good. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get overly, um, you know, controversial with this, but uh, you know, there was some controversy several years ago when the ethics and religious liberty commission of the Southern Baptist convention um, signed on. Um, I think they, they, they participated in a, an amicus brief in a court case about a Muslim mosque at ground zero. And some Southern Baptists were especially bothered by that because they thought, well, uh, Islam is a false religion. Why would Baptists step in to defend a false religion? Uh, and in one sense, you, you know, it's understandable why people might say that. But again, if you understand Baptist history and if you understand the Baptist conception of religious liberty, that's perfectly in keeping with what Baptists have always believed in our better moments. Uh, anyway, that, that, Religious liberty is for everybody, including people who are who believe false things, not because we're trying to support untruths or support falsity, but because we want uh, ample space for the expression of religion so that we can help evangelize Muslims right. who believe the false. Like, right. like it, it's it's not a matter of of, of a kind of uh, religious relativism where we're like ah, we all kind of have our own views. <clears throat> let's just live and let live. No, it's, it's precisely because we believe that the word, the sword of the spirit, the word of God can convert people right. that we want religious liberty for all. We want, we want, as, as the Baptist faith and message puts it, the, the Christian ideal is a free church in a free state Yeah, because that's the, the best uh, environment in which uh, evangelism could take place and real conversion take place. And it, and it, yeah. it's not something we should be embarrassed by. That's not, that's not some novel position by yeah. And you know neoliberals in the 21st century. That is the Baptist position. Is right. even specifically on Muslims. Right. right. That was there in Helwas, uh, and it's here in in uh, Williams as well. That's right. Yeah. So we, we I don't know that we're going to deal with um, sort of a Baptist vision for politics in any other podcast episode, or at least on the reading challenge. So just to just to kind of keep belaboring what we've been saying. Um, the Baptist vision of religious liberty both wants to affirm freedom of conscience for all people in, uh, with respect to uh, religious faith and practice or lack thereof. It at the same time acknowledges that the state has a role to play in promoting the good and defending against evil, which is an objective reality that they can either be in line with or not be in line with. So if you, if you were to go read, and I, I believe we did say this last time, but if you were to go read statements on Baptist views of the relationship between church and the state, it is not a laissez-faire hands-off kind of, you know, again, libertarian view, either, either a, a sort of laissez-faire liberalism or a, a contemporary libertarian view of morality and morality laws. There was space in the the Baptist vision for um, the state and church relation. There was, there was room for Baptist to want the government to um, articulate laws related to morality and to push them in that direction. 
but it wasn't it wasn't via official mechanisms is the difference the church doesn't govern the state and the state doesn't govern the church but the church still needs to speak prophetically to the state and acknowledge where it is defending uh where it is uh, promoting the good and rebuke it where it is defend uh, not defending against evil or protecting evil um and and that's that's still the case today so you know there is room for us to say something like we should not we should not be promoting laws that allow for rank sexual immorality especially uh with respect to harm done to others i mean th- th- there's there's ample room for us to be able to say that out loud there's ample room for a Baptist to be able to address specific practices and specific laws and say the government shouldn't be doing this or the government shouldn't allow this. And it doesn't matter if everybody else agrees with us. We're not ruled by the mob. We're ruled by Christ ultimately. And even the government is responsible to Christ, even if they can't articulate it or know it. So, I mean, there's space no. in between theonomy and libertarianism. And that's called Baptist view of politics. Yeah, and and the distinctions that Williams lays out uh, provide for that, right? So, I mean, there's a, a a series of pairs that he talks about. So, I mean, one of the fundamental Baptist distinctives is the separation of church and state. That's the way we think of it today. But the way he talks about it here, uh, two two tables, two swords, two ministries, two kingdoms. That's that's the idea. So you have two tables, right? So that, that's a reference to the Mosaic law, um, that there are two tablets. So traditionally, like the first four commandments are uh, our duty toward God, and the last six uh, our duty toward our, our fellow man. And so what uh, Williams argues is that the state has jurisdiction to only enforce the, the second table. Like the, the state, according to the Baptist view, according to Williams, the state can't step in and say, um, you know, you you have to worship the one true God or else you're going to be persecuted in prison, kicked out, whatever. Right. Uh, so the, the, the state does not have the authority under Christ of enforcing religion, the first table. The state does, however, have the authority given to it by Christ. Romans 13, they bear the, the power of the sword in order to uh, enforce the second table. That is our duty toward our fellow man. So all of that, all all of the things there about honoring father and mother and about murder and adultery and theft and bearing false witness, you know, all of that, um, that that includes certainly moral dimensions. I mean, the the last commandment is about coveting, you know, and so there there is a moral dimension uh, to the second table. And that's what the the, the state has the authority to enforce uh, through the sword of of government. Um, And and, and on the other hand, the the church, uh, right, the, the church. Um, has the authority to to um, to execute both tables of the law, but only through excommunication, mm-hmm. not through uh, the literal sword, right? So right. it's the sword of the spirit, the word of God, that the, the church uh, has responsibility to enforce all that God teaches, both tables of the law and all, all of the scriptures, but its sword, its ministry is a ministry of, of the word and, and, and of uh, uh, excommunication if necessary. Yeah, and so just keeping those things separate, right? We just recognize that both are legitimate spheres. Baptists are not Anabaptists in this sense, right? So we're not right. arguing for a retreat from the world. We're not arguing that Christians can't participate fully in civic life. We're not arguing that 
that Christians can't serve as civil magistrates or take civil oaths or anything like that. We're not quietists pulling away from society, but we, we participate in civil society according to a distinct manifestation of God's rule. It's right. a distinct kingdom, right? right. It's a distinct uh, manifestation of God's, of God's sovereign rule. Yep. God rules in the church through the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and through the, the, um, the, the, the ultimate discipline of excommunication and God governs his rule in the state. Um, again, executing the second table of the law through, through laws with punishments. Right. And so, you know, once again, uh, Baptist visions of relationship between church and state of religious liberty, we're not trying to say Baptists shouldn't be involved in government or that we shouldn't care about the government. Neither, neither of those things is true. Um, what we are saying is that there are particular modes and avenues of addressing the government and participating in the government that don't cross the boundary line that's, that exists in order to protect freedom of conscience. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of consternation today among, uh, especially among conservative evangelicals, theologically conservative evangelicals, which often are also politically conservative in a narrow, narrower uh, American sense. Um, there's a consternation about the direction of our country and where it's headed and this sort of thing. And I think there's a kind of urge to, to grasp at temporary political power and that that's the way that we need to right the ship. And the, I mean, there is something to like, yeah, let's put candidates forward who um, are godly men and women who can serve in those capacities and all that's fine. Um, but it, it feels like there's a more of an even more of an urgency to grasp at whatever we can in order to um, force the political mechanisms that exist in our country back towards what we what we have seen as a kind of um, more morally right version uh, of, of, an, of a democracy. Um, I, I think two things need to be said there. First of all, that's not the Baptist vision of the relationship between church and state. The idea is not to grasp at the handles of power, but instead um, to evangelize your neighbor so that as they operate within the system, the system changes that way. It's, it's, it's less direct and more grassroots, which I think Baptists love grassroots. So, you know, um, the, the, the way that we enact social change and political change is in some ways just preach the gospel, go share the gospel with your neighbor. And that'll change a democratic society faster than anything else will. You can't change hearts and minds um, through appointing justices or through enacting laws or anything like that. You cannot change hearts and minds. The only thing that can change hearts and minds is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So go share the gospel with your neighbor. That's the Baptist vision of the relationship between church and state. Um, I don't remember what the other thing I was going to say is, so I'll leave it at that. Uh, well, I'll just I'll I'll insert my own. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean that that's not to say, however, that we that you know in a democracy or or even in other arrange, political arrangements that we can't seek to establish just laws. Of course, we should. You know, right. and and the thing that I wanted to underscore is that Baptists always have right. I mean, so this notion of religious liberty and of the separation of church and state has never meant for Baptists uh, a retreat from issues in the public square, even right. moral issues in the public square. That's so right. We could, we could point to um, 
the abolition of the slave trade uh, uh, in the early 19th century that Baptists were involved with. We could point to uh, Spurgeon's opposition to slavery, where he wouldn't even have fellowship with American Baptists who were slave owners. Right. Uh, we could point to William Carey uh, in India in the 18th century, uh, who opposed the, the Hindu practice of sati, where widows were burned on their right. uh, husband's funeral pyres. And he and actually, uh, Carey helped to, to help, help, help to outlaw that, uh, right. that practice in India. Uh, we could point to the civil rights movement, people like Martin Luther King Jr. and other people who were Baptists. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to, to our shame, Southern Baptists weren't a part of that uh, very often, but but some Baptists were, right? And, and so Black Baptists, Northern Baptists were involved in, in those uh, uh, moral causes in the public square. And then today, right. I mean, I, I, mean I, I don't think you could, um, you could, uh, Baptists are sort of second to none in, in the contemporary context in opposing abortion. Right. Um, which right. we, which we all happily do. Uh, right. Yep. And we, you know, those of us who are uh, more conservative uh, Baptists, we we uh, happily uh, seek to to uh, redress unjust laws like that. Right. And so it's not a matter of us not trying to, um, you know, push for uh, justice and righteousness in the in the public square. We're just saying that the state doesn't have the right to enforce religion. Right. right? Not right. not necessarily morality, uh, right. which we know through the natural law and through conscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we just, we don't have, we don't want the state enforcing a particular religion or even a particular denomination. That's right. Boom. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of our time. So I'll close this with the grace and we'll see you next time. If you know it, say it with me. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.